Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. In 1948, a young couple, Timothy and Beryl Evans, moved into a flat in Notting Hill. Beryl was pregnant and soon after gave birth to a baby girl, whom they called Geraldine. A few months later, Beryl would find herself pregnant again, but the timing wasn't right and decisions had to be made. However, the procedure she needed was illegal at the time and so they had to find another way around their predicament. Luckily for them, a neighbour who happened to be able to do what they needed lived just downstairs and he offered his services for free, meaning the whole problem could be fixed within an hour and the couple could go back to their lives. Little did they realise this neighbour had nefarious intentions and within a year, all of the family would be dead. Today on Macabre London, we uncover the murder house at 10 Rillington Place and the many crimes of John Reginald Christie. Welcome back to another episode of Macabre London. I'm Nikki Druce, your host with a silent G, and today I'll be taking you on a journey down another of London's grimy back streets to uncover a macabre tale from the city's past. And today we're headed back for the second instalment of the story of 10 Rillington Place, the most infamous murder house in the whole of London. However, before we get into today's episode, if you're new here and you want to see more videos where we deep dive into some lesser known historic tales from London's past, and in fact all over the world, then please don't forget to subscribe or follow so you never miss a new episode. If you aren't new here and you regularly enjoy the show and want it to continue, please consider supporting me on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. 
There's loads of bonus content over there, including my monthly show, Gin and Ghost Stories, where I drink gin and tell ghost stories. My new show with my long-suffering other half called Having a Problem, which is lots of silly fun with a bit of history thrown in, and lots of other fun, spooky bonus bits and bobs too. Why not take a look on patreon.com forward slash London? I'd love to see you there. In part one of our story, we heard about John Christie's early life and his upbringing in a loveless family, his teenage embarrassments with his sexual performance and his unhealthy fascination with death from an early age. He then went on to serve in the army during World War I, suffered a mustard gas attack and was, according to him, rendered deaf and mute for three years. When he returned from the army, he met a girl named Ethel, and soon the two were married. However, Ethel wanted children, and John couldn't give them to her with his condition. And amongst other incompatibility issues, the two separated, with John moving to London from Yorkshire, and Ethel moving to Sheffield to be with family. Once in London, John spent his time carrying out odd jobs, but also turning to petty crime to make ends meet, such as stealing and larceny. He was convicted for a few of those crimes and spent a decade in and out of prison. One of these prison stints ended up being far more telling about the man John Christie would become when he was charged with assault on his girlfriend at the time, Maud Cole, whom he attacked with a cricket bat, leaving her wounded. But luckily, she survived. Back out in the world, he then rekindled his failed marriage with Ethel and convinced her to move to London and the two rented a flat at Tenrillington Place, a three-storey Victorian townhouse which was split into three apartments. John then got a role as a part-time policeman and also a lorry driver, and it seemed like he was getting his life back on track. But things wouldn't stay that way, as John found the only way he could be satisfied was by visiting sex workers who would satiate his need for rough play, which he couldn't get from his wife due to his embarrassment at asking for it. However, John got carried away with one adult worker, 21-year-old Austrian munitions worker Ruth First, and he accidentally killed her by strangulation using a rope, burying her body in the small yard behind the flat. A year later, and now having resigned from his part-time policeman role in fear of being caught, John would strike again. This time, he premeditated the murder of his colleague, Muriel Edie, who he lured back to Ten Wellington Place, on the premise he could help cure her bronchitis, given that he too suffered from respiratory issues. But this was all a lie, and Muriel Edie was duped with a combination of Fry's balsam and coal gas, which she breathed in through a jar, rendering her unconscious. John then assaulted her unconscious body before using a rope to strangle her. He would then bury her in the yard alongside Ruth. And that's where we pick back up today, four years after the murder of Muriel and with a new couple looking to move into a vacant flat in 10 Rillington Place. Timothy Evans, a boy born and raised in the Valleys, moved to London from Wales in 1946 in search of better paying work than his hometown of Merthyr Tydfil had to offer. 
Not long after he moved, he scored a good job and met a lovely South London girl named Beryl Thorley. And in 1948, the pair married and they soon began renting a flat at 10 Wellington Place. Beryl was pregnant and not long after the move, she gave birth to a daughter who they named Geraldine. The couple, who were in their early 20s, were short of money and Timothy worked as a van driver to make ends meet and to support his wife and child. Timothy made just £7 a week, which was not horrendously low, averaging at about what we would know today to be around £300 a week, but this had to cover all expenses for the household. The amount of money Timothy was earning was enough to keep both him, Beryl and baby Geraldine in a reasonable manner, but the money wouldn't have stretched much further. So when Beryl discovered she was pregnant with baby number two, she decided it wasn't the right time so close to baby Geraldine's birth, and so she discussed the options with Timothy. Beryl wasn't keen to keep the child, but Timothy said he would find a way to get them more money. Now, at this point in the story, it's worth mentioning that Timothy had learning difficulties and what would later be reported as a lower-than-average IQ, clocking in at just 70. 30 points lower than the national average of 100. This meant that even though he was good at his job, loyal, reliable and a hard worker, the chances of him being employed in anything more than a standard wage menial job at this time in history was very low. Beryl too had a lower IQ and this meant that sadly the pair were easy to take advantage of. And unfortunately for them, John Christie realised this potential and decided to prey upon the pair to get exactly what he wanted. Christie learned of Beryl's unwanted child and he told the couple that he was able to provide a solution to their problem as he knew how to carry out abortions and had done so for many other women. This was, of course, a complete fabrication and completely untrue. Before John waded in with his deceptive solution to Beryl's problem, she'd tried some pills which hadn't worked. And of course, it's worth remembering that at this time, that procedure was still illegal, which led to a lot of women putting their lives in the hands of untrained people who would hack at them or sell them mystery pills, which were just straight up poison, to try and solve their problem. It wouldn't be until 19 years later, in 1967, that the procedure would become legal in the UK, and the horrors of just simply being a person with a functioning uterus would cease to be illegal. So, as the pair had been offered a solution which was highly convenient, able to be carried out at home, and better than that, free, they both decided this was the best option, and John had his next victim handed to him on a plate. Timothy went to work that day and told Beryl to go to Christie's flat whenever she was ready, and he would perform the procedure whilst he was out, and it would be over by the time he returned. Little did he know that John had decided Beryl would never make it out alive. Using the same method he did for Muriel before her, Beryl was given the same jar concoction and told to breathe in for pain relief. This knocked her out cold, and John repeated the exact same method he had with Muriel, assaulting her and then strangling her to death with a length of rope. But this time, he also left some bruising on her face, which was a calculated act to aid him 
in his plan. Later that day, when Timothy returned from work, John broke the news that the intended procedure had failed and that Beryl had died. Christie told Evans that because Beryl had taken the tablets before the procedure, which weren't successful, that she conducted sepsis and she died because of this. Obviously, this explanation, which came from Christie, who made it sound medically viable and plausible, was instantly accepted by Timothy and he was left bereft and guilt-ridden. As the initial situation was illegal, Christie convinced Timothy he would go to prison because of it, and the blame would fall on him regardless of what had happened. John said, however, that he would save the both of them and sort the whole thing out by disposing of Beryl's body. Firstly, he moved Beryl's body to another room in the flat and said that Timothy should continue on as usual and look after baby Geraldine. When it came time for Timothy to go to work, Christie said he would care for Geraldine at home. After a few days, John ordered Timothy to return to Wales to tell his family that Beryl had left him and taken Geraldine with her, as he would send his daughter to family he knew in London who would care for her until he returned. Now, for anyone else, this would have rung alarm bells at what John's plans were for baby Geraldine. However, Timothy was in shock, overcome with grief, and also with his learning difficulties, he blindly did what his neighbour told him. Before he left, John said he was going to put Beryl down a manhole cover in the street to dispose of her body, but he didn't. Instead, he stored her in a shed in the garden. Back in Wales, Timothy couldn't stand the guilt at what had happened to his dear wife any longer, and so he went to the police station to tell them the truth. He said that Beryl had had a failed abortion, which had killed her, and that he'd put her body down a manhole cover in Rillington Place. Police went to investigate the street and the manhole cover, but there was no body to be found. Police then went to 10 Rillington Place to continue the search, but they didn't find anything. Had they cared to take a look in the shed within the yard, they would have found not only Beryl, but sadly also baby Geraldine, both wrapped in a tablecloth and a bedsheet. Timothy was questioned again by the police, and this time he told them the truth, that John Christie had been the one to carry out the procedure, and that he had told him that Beryl had died of sepsis. Police went to question John, but of course he managed to talk his way out of the situation and implicated Timothy by saying he would hear the pair having dreadful loud arguments and that he was certain Timothy was beating his wife, including seeing her with bruises on her face. This last point, which was carefully constructed by Christie, proved to be true when the officers conducted a full search of the Evans flat and the yard where they found both bodies, complete with bruises on Beryl's face. The word of John Christie was believed over Timothy Evans simply because the investigating officers thought this was a working-class crime and not something that John, who was intellectually superior, well-spoken and also was at one point a police officer himself, could be capable of. When Beryl's post-mortem was carried out, there were no physical signs of an abortion having taken place and so the police were certain this was just another domestic abuse case. They made Timothy identify the body of his wife, but when he was at the mortuary, 
they also showed him the body of baby Geraldine. At this point, Timothy was entirely dismayed, as he had been told by Christy that she was going to be sent to another family in London to be taken care of, but instead he'd just killed her as if she meant absolutely nothing and was simply an inconvenience to be disposed of as he wished. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Timothy, who was by this time beside himself with grief, anger, and confusion at what was happening to him, was taken to the police station for questioning, which went on for hours. This coerced a false confession and police arrested and charged Timothy with the murder of both Beryl and Geraldine. The confession, which was written by police at the station as Timothy himself was illiterate, was odd as it was later revealed that it didn't match the way Timothy spoke and that it was clearly written by someone with a wider vocabulary than him, leading many to now think this was written and presented to Timothy and he was told to sign the piece of paper so he could go home, unknowingly confessing to the crime. With the signed confession by Timothy completed, the police could make a quick conviction and solve the case, sending him to be tried in court for the crime of murdering Geraldine, as this was a far more emotive case than Beryl's, and so they were certain this would be the one to get a guilty verdict from the jury. And they weren't wrong. However, one person nobody would expect to be on the stand at the trial at the Old Bailey that day was John Christie himself. Police had asked him to be a chief witness in the case, and he testified astutely against Evans, who didn't stand a hope in hell against this intelligent liar. Perhaps most surprising was that Ethel Christie also testified against Evans and said she too had heard the couple arguing in their flat, and so it seems that Ethel was either lying to save her own husband, knowing what he'd been up to, or she was in fear that the same would happen to her next. It could also be that she was told by John to lie just in case police thought it may have been him and so the story they delivered was watertight. 
The lies by the Christies in court worked, so much so that the jury were only out for 40 minutes on deliberations and on the 13th of January 1950, after a three-day trial, the jury returned a guilty verdict against Timothy Evans with the judge delivering a death sentence to the innocent man. Once in Pentonville Prison, Timothy appealed, but this was overturned and by March of the same year, he was at the end of Albert Pierrepoint's noose, paying for a crime he didn't commit. After this time, back at 10 Rillington Place, the property was taken over by a new landlord who began moving in more tenants into the split accommodation. And as time passed, Christie was becoming increasingly worried that the two bodies he had buried in the yard may become disturbed. Two years had passed since Christie's last murder, but as tensions rose, he began to take out his aggressions on Ethel, and before long, she too would become another of his victims. It's not known why Christie suddenly decided he had to get rid of his wife, but it's not difficult to assume that if she did know more of what had happened at the home, that all the while she was alive, she was a risk to John's freedom. And so she had to go. This time, instead of using his tried and tested gassing technique, he used a silk stocking to asphyxiate her. And then, like before, he pulled up the floorboards to store her body. Instead of moving her into the yard, he decided to keep her body within the home. But this time, the approach he took was different, as he didn't assault her. And for that reason, we have to assume he was simply disposing of her, instead of this being for gratification purposes, as it had been before with all of his other victims. And just like that, after countless years of commitment to staying in a loveless and manipulative marriage to keep up appearances, Ethel was disposed of as yet another inconvenience. A policeman would later reveal that John would go on to confess that he had still been carrying out a business of illegal abortions at the home and that one day Ethel had found him assaulting one of the passed out girls in the living room, which was why he got rid of her in case she ratted him out. However, this has never been confirmed as the official reason. Unlike John, who had no family that cared about him, just the odd estranged sister, Ethel's family loved her and they began to grow suspicious when she stopped writing and didn't go back home for one of her regular visits. Of course, John had all the excuses for her whereabouts, saying she had developed rheumatoid arthritis and it was too painful for her to write, and that she'd taken an impromptu trip to Birmingham with a friend. When neighbours asked after Ethel, who was known on Rillington Place as a likeable character, they were told she'd gone back home to Sheffield indefinitely. Eventually, John just simply stopped replying to the letters. As time passed and Ethel was under the floorboards, John had grown complacent. It seemed that he would never get caught for any of his murders and he was free to do whatever he liked. In the small yard lay two bodies, which were walked over by police countless times during the discovery of Beryl and Geraldine, who had failed to notice anything untoward even the rickety fence which John had decided to prop up with one of the victim's femurs, the largest bone in the human body. During the Evans case, Christie's dog had dug up Muriel's skull and he had shrewdly taken it and thrown it into a bombed-out building, knowing it would never be discovered and if it was, 
no one would care. John was taking full advantage of living in a place that had been disregarded by the police, forgotten by law enforcement, and the women who had gone missing were deemed too insignificant to care about. John was feeling like he was completely immune to the eyes of the law. On a police visit to his home for an unrelated crime on the street of a burglary, a policeman even sat in Christie's now bare living room as he had quit his job and sold almost everything he owned, including all of Ethel's belongings, and he remarked on the putrid smell within the flat. However, he was told by John that it was due to the West Indian family's cooking, which lived in the flat above him, and that policeman blindly accepted that incredibly racist story. Ah, the 1950s. What a shit show. Now John was on his own, and seemingly free to do whatever he liked without recourse, he continued on with his spree, and the murders would now happen in quick succession, as he had no fear of being discovered. But before we head into the next part of the story, now seems like the right time to take a bit of a breather, and maybe grab yourself a coffee. But wait, I might just have something that's going to revolutionise your coffee game. Let me tell you about our wonderful sponsor of today's show, London Nootropics. Now, usually when I get sponsors for the show, they approach me. But this time around, I got in touch with London Nootropics as I really wanted to share their fantastic products with you all. And I'm so pleased they wanted me to help share their message with you because they're fab. So let me tell you a little bit about them and why I love their adaptogenic coffee. I first discovered London Nootropics when I was trying to find something to help me with unpleasant lingering brain fog following a nasty bout of COVID. I bought a box thinking it wouldn't do very much, but I was blown away by how effective it was at giving me the clarity I was desperately searching for, and it was love from then on, and I've had a subscription with them ever since. So let me tell you a little bit about them. London Nootropics adaptogenic coffee blends are designed to help you stay balanced, find your flow and have the most productive day possible. They give you all the benefits of regular coffee whilst minimising side effects such as jitters, anxiety and that nasty crash that none of us want. They're lovingly made with the highest quality medicinal mushroom extracts and other responsibly sourced adaptogens. And each blend is designed for a specific purpose. Now, this is the thing I love about them. Personally, they don't just have one bulk standard drink. These are all formulated especially to help you throughout the day. They've thought about everything from giving you a morning blend in the form of flow, which helps with mental clarity and focus to kickstart your day, mojo to help with that mid-morning slump, and zen to alleviate stress, which I find particularly effective for providing me with calm concentration in those boring post-lunch meetings. I love that their ingredients are all thoughtfully sourced from the best suppliers and their list of active compounds they use in their different blends is all really good stuff. Mojo has cordyceps mushrooms and ginseng and is great for endurance and exercise, but I love it for a mid-morning pickup. Flow is what I drink to start my day with lion's mane and rhodiola in its blend. It sets you up for a good productive morning. And Zen with its lovely CBD is just bliss in a cup. Great if you want energy to do yoga, but need calm to sit and meditate without thinking about your to-do list, which of course won't exist because you'll have already had your cup of flow in the morning and got everything ticked off it. Now, the best part of this for me is the convenience. I love the individual sachets for work and for traveling, and you don't need any fancy kit to make them. Just some boiling water and a milk of your choice. I personally think they're really good with oat milk. A mix box starts at just £15, which will get you a mix of all three blends so you can find your favorite or just fall in love with all of them like I did. 
They also do subscriptions, which I personally have, which saves you around 20%. But wait, I have a discount code so you can try it out for yourself and see what you think. I know you're going to love it. Try London Nootropics today and find your flow by heading to londonnootropics.com and enjoy 20% off with code MACAB. That's L-O-N-D-O-N-N-O-O-T-R-O-P-I-C-S dot com and use the code M-A-C-A-B-R-E for 20% off your purchase. Oh, and they also do free shipping in the UK if you spend over £30, but they ship internationally too. Even Kim Kardashian drinks it. And if that's not a claim to fame, I don't know what is. Thanks for listening and for letting me share this favourite product of mine with you. And now let's get back to the episode. In January... John picked up a sex worker named Kathleen Maloney from the Labrooke Grove area of Notting Hill. Christy had been a customer of 26-year-old Maloney's before, and so she was lulled into a full sense of security by him and went willingly to turn Wellington Place to carry out the act. But sadly for her, she would never leave the squalid flat. He carried out the same routine he had with his other victims, but now he was getting more depraved and took great pleasure from assaulting her as she fell in and out of consciousness until she died. This time Christy had to be inventive with where he would hide her body as he was running out of space, so he stashed her behind an alcove in his kitchen, her body wrapped in a bedsheet. The next month, he met Rita Nelson, who was visiting her sister in London. Rita had found herself pregnant and didn't want to have the child. And it's not known how Christy learned this, but it's thought he overheard the two chatting in a local cafe and decided to offer his services. Rita, desperate to find a solution to her problem, went back to Ten Wellington Place and suffered the same fate many had before her. She was gassed, assaulted and strangled and shoved in the alcove in the kitchen alongside poor Kathleen, again wrapped in a sheet and her legs bound to her body to make sure she fitted in the space. Then a month later, he met Scottish-born 27-year-old Hectorina McLennan. McLennan had been made homeless during the war due to bombing and had ever since been struggling to find somewhere permanent to live. Again, Christy found out about this by listening in on conversations, again at a local cafe, and offered Hectorina a room at 10 Wellington Place. She agreed, and a few days later, back in the cafe, Hectorina brought along her boyfriend, Alex Baker, to meet John, which was an unexpected bump in the road for his plan. Christy had to quickly adapt if he wanted to keep Hectorina around, and so he said it was fine for Alex to move in too. By this time, both Rita and Kathleen were in the walls, and also Ethel still remained under the floorboards. And so the stench must have been horrific in the home, which only highlights just how desperate Hectorina and Alex must have been for somewhere to stay during the freezing cold winter. Once they were both under his roof, Christie had a small window of opportunity to carry out his inevitable crime against Hectorina, but she and Alex found a place to move to, and so one day she was gone and had moved out of 10 Rillington Place. But Christie, always the opportunist, saw Hectorina a few days later and asked her to go with him back to his house for an unknown reason perhaps to get some belongings, maybe to help John with a made-up problem, or to simply have a farewell cuppa before she moved on. And she willingly accompanied him. 
Once back in the comfort of the grim bedsit, John would take this opportunity to strangle Hectorina and again assaulted her before she was also unceremoniously added to the collection of bodies in the alcove. By this time, the space was now fit to bursting, and so to hide the poor women, John boarded up and wallpapered over the space so it became hidden from view. Hectorina was missed by her boyfriend Alex when she hadn't been around for a few days, and so he stopped by Ten Rillington Place to ask John if he'd seen his girlfriend, and if she'd dropped by. Of course, John denied having seen Hectorina, and even accompanied Alex around the streets of Notting Hill looking for her. He planted the seed in Alex's brain that perhaps she'd gone back to Scotland and for the next few days made sure he checked in a few times with Alex to see if Hectorina had turned up, knowing the whole time she was hidden behind his false wall back at home. A few weeks later, the smell at Ten Rillington Place was becoming unbearable for Christie and it seemed it wouldn't be long before the stench would lead people to uncover his crimes. With his money starting to run out and paranoia starting to set in, he decided he would leave Rillington Place and make a run for it. However, he didn't account that his last act of criminality, which was child's play compared to everything up until now, would be the thing that would give him away. In order to fund his elopement, he sublet his flat to a couple posing as the landlord of 10 Rillington Place and charged them in advance for the rent for a quick let. However, the landlord came over that evening for some unknown reason and found the new couple in Christie's flat and ordered them to leave immediately. And as he didn't have their money, they didn't get a refund. As Christie had moved out, the tenant who lived in the top floor flat, Beresford Brown, which is a wonderful name, asked the landlord if he could temporarily use John's pungent kitchen until a new tenant moved in, as he didn't have one. The landlord agreed and Beresford made himself at home. As he went to install a bracket on the kitchen wall to hold a radio he could listen to as he cooked, he realised the wall was hollow. He then noticed it had been wallpapered over. He curiously tapped and realised that the paper was over something, so he tore a small piece of it away and realised there was something stashed behind it. He began tearing at the wallpaper and to his horror revealed the crumpled up bodies of Rita Nelson, Hectorina McLennan and Kathleen Maloney. Beresford asked for the second opinion of another tenant in the house and they both concluded that these were human remains and they immediately called the police. With such a shocking report, police came in droves to investigate the property and on the 24th of March 1953, they retrieved the bodies of the three women inside the alcove. But at this point, they didn't realise there were three more stashed around the property. It didn't take long though for them to thoroughly search the house this time. Ethel was found under the floorboards and then Muriel Edie and Ruth first in the garden. But the police, from the get-go, were vehement that the previous discovery of Beryl and Geraldine had nothing to do with this case, and that the right man had gone to the gallows for it. Christie was now a wanted man. He stayed in London and lived in a hotel for a few days. He then slept rough, spent time in cinemas and roaming the streets, waiting for the inevitable to happen. When on the 31st of March 1953, he received the tap on the shoulder he was waiting for. 
Whilst on the embankment by Putney Bridge, John was stopped by a policeman who had a sneaking suspicion that the unkempt man may have been the wanted criminal. Christie was wearing a hat and when asked for ID, he couldn't produce any. But he said his name was John Waddington, a combination of his first name and Ethel's maiden name. Unconvinced, the police officer asked him to remove his hat, which he duly did, and the large, bulbous forehead Christie possessed was revealed, giving away his identity instantly. As if any further evidence was needed, stashed in one of his pockets were newspaper clippings about his own murders, his ID card and a ration book, which all had his name upon them. The officer arrested Christie and it was over for him. Finally, the vile, smug, cowardly serial assaulter, misogynist and murderer had been caught and he wasn't going to get off lightly. Straight off the bat, Christie admitted to the murders of Hectorina, Rita and Kathleen. He then also admitted to murdering Ethel. When it was revealed to him that Muriel and Ruth had been found in the yard, he then confessed to those two. He did go on to say he also murdered Beryl, but he was reluctant to admit to the murder of baby Geraldine, as that was too heinous of a crime for them to consider a not guilty plea by way of insanity, which was what he was hoping for. For every confession, Christie had what he deemed a plausible reason for why his victims had needed to die. Ethel, for example, he said was unwell and so he put her out of her misery. Beryl, he said, had asked him to assist in her suicide as she didn't want to have her baby. He said he couldn't remember all of them, but some were for jealousy reasons as they were in love with him and he couldn't risk Ethel finding out. Generally, he was so self-important that he truly believed the police would just either agree and let him go, or they would think he was so delusional that they would send him to an institution where he could live out his days. With these confessions, the police had enough to go on to charge him with each murder, but the law at the time would only allow for him to be tried for one murder, and so they had to put the most compelling of all the cases forward to make sure he was convicted. The murder of Ethel was picked as the easiest to prove due to the additional evidence from family members and the stealing from her bank account and selling of her belongings. Christie was tried at the Old Bailey on the 22nd of June 1953 in the same place that Timothy Evans had also been tried and found guilty of crimes he didn't commit. Now it was Christie's turn and no kindness was shown to the ruthless killer, and his hope of an insanity plea was laughable, despite his solicitor's best attempts. The trial lasted just four days, and when the jury went to deliberate, it took them just an hour and 22 minutes to return a guilty verdict. Christie was sentenced to death by hanging, and was executed at 9am on the 15th of July 1953 at HM Prison, Pentonville, by Albert Pierpoint the executioner, who had also taken Timothy Evans' life. Just before the execution, John was pinioned with his arms tied behind his back, as was usual for the procedure. Soon after, he complained to Albert that his nose itched. Albert quickly retorted that he shouldn't worry, as it wouldn't bother him for long. After the trial... Huge questions were asked of the police and the investigation into Timothy Evans' wrongful conviction and execution for the murder of his wife Beryl and their daughter Geraldine. 
An inquiry was carried out, which doubled down on the conviction of Timothy Evans, saying that Christie's confession to the murders were unreliable. After all, if the police admitted that they had knowingly protected one of their own, this threw the criminal justice system up in the air and would leave gaping holes in the suitability of the death penalty, rendering it obsolete. The outcome from this inquiry was met with scepticism from newspapers and anti-capital punishment commentators at the time, and this led to a secondary inquiry which still doubled down and said that Evans did kill Beryl despite all of the evidence which was to the contrary and the fact that John admitted to doing it. Finally though, somebody saw sense and he was cleared of murdering baby Geraldine being posthumously pardoned in 1966 of his conviction, which isn't a whole lot of good when you're already dead. But it did at least clear his name for his family's sake. This miscarriage of justice, along with a few other cases, led to the suspension of the death penalty in 1965, with it eventually being banned altogether much later in 1998. But by this time, it hadn't been enacted since 1964. The long-lasting effect of Christie's murders didn't die with him and went on to be felt by those still unlucky enough to be living on Rillington Place, which by this time had become a gruesome destination on London's unofficial murder map. The infamy of the address grew to unsettling levels from the general public and it became a macabre tourist destination with even people travelling from America to see the infamous murder house. As the crowds grew and the residents of the street became exasperated at the hordes of curious passers-by, the street was eventually renamed Runton Close, just a year after Christie was executed, in an attempt to bamboozle people who came to find the home. In 1971, the film of the same name as the infamous address was made, starring Richard Attenborough, yes, the brother of David, and some scenes were even shot at the home, something which seems unthinkable today. This only dredged back up the interest in the street and the amount of visitors, and eventually enough was enough. The entire street was demolished in the 70s to make way for new builds to try and rid the area of the metaphorical lingering stench of Christie's crimes. This was partly due to the horrendous reputation of the street despite the name change, but also because the buildings were old, decrepit, and didn't meet modern building standards. The decision was taken when building the new housing at Bartle Road and St Andrew's Square that the plot that intersected between the two roads where the murder house once sat would be left without a building on top of it and left as a memorial garden to the victims of John Christie, even though it's not marked as such and the space is fenced off from the general public with access for residents only. Interestingly, the view from the end of Bartle Street looks on to Grenfell Tower, the site where on the 14th of June 2017, 72 people lost their lives as a result of shoddy housing which the Conservative government refused to fix, despite knowing it was highly flammable and having been warned a fire would be catastrophic for those who lived there. So despite the area being a stone's throw from the multi-millionaires which live on the top of Notting Hill, Not much has changed for those who live at the bottom. John Christie went on to become a permanent fixture at the Chamber of Horrors and Madame Tussauds, and has remained on show for the majority of time since he was convicted of his crimes in various tableaus of 10 Rillington Place. 
The one I remember visiting when I was a child was him standing in front of the alcove, which had the bodies peeking out of the poor three women he shoved in there. During the 90s, when the Chamber of Horrors was at its most gruesome, and looking at it with modern eyes, probably its most tasteless, a recreation of the execution of John Christie could be watched every 60 seconds as a wax Albert Pierre point would repeatedly pull the lever on the trapdoor for the condemned man, sending the wax version of him plummeting to his death over and over during opening hours. Probably something which the narcissistic Christie would have loved, as it made him somewhat the star attraction. Nowadays, the Chamber of Horrors has reopened, with a more reflective take on British true crime. And John Christie is still one of the exhibits sitting in his living room, reading his newspaper, which he occasionally lowers to look at you as you walk on a glass floor, which reveals Ethel hidden underneath it. As we delve into the life and crimes of John Reginald Christie, a chilling narrative of personal challenges and unwise choices emerged to create a man whose abhorrent actions ultimately went on to eclipse the story of each of his victims' lives, leaving him with the notoriety and attention he always craved throughout his life. Growing up in a family which berated him one minute and then mollycoddled him the next made for a confused childhood which found him finding solace in death. This paired with later embarrassments in his teenage years over his failed sexual prowess would develop into a complex desire to lord power over those he felt were beneath him, but who simultaneously held the key to what he wanted the most, attention and desire from young women. Christie was forever trying to rid himself of the shame he felt about his teenage years and his impotence, his relationship with his mother, father and sisters, and to rid himself of his own demons, he took it out on eight victims who all paid for his misgivings with their lives, making him one of England's most infamous and deplorable serial killers. Now to mention the extra victim in all of this, Timothy Evans, who was sent to the gallows by Christie, knowing full well he would literally take the fall on his behalf. Timothy's story still stands as a haunting testament to the fallibility of justice and serves as a strong reminder that given the opportunity, those in power will always opt to look after their own instead of the common man, allowing those who can to take advantage in any way possible. And in John Reginald Christie's case, that includes getting away with murder. this episode i hope you found that tale as fascinating as i did i think i can safely say if i ever have to hear john christie's name again or see his horrible dome head peering at me it will be too soon what a truly despicable horror show of a man I know this episode will 99.9% be demonetized on YouTube, so if you want to help me get paid for spending so many hours writing and researching this, then your support would be so incredibly magical and hugely and enormously appreciated. 
You can support me in a variety of ways, including signing up to my Patreon, using the thanks button on YouTube, heading to my coffee page, or checking out my Amazon wishlist or buying some merch. I also have my PayPal link if you just want to bung me a couple of quid to help me recoup the large amounts of gin I had to down whilst learning about all of this awfulness so I could share it with you. If you head to the support me section in the show notes on the podcast or just click on the video info on YouTube, then everything you need is there. And it's not all about money, sharing the show around on social media, telling your friends, your postman, your local dog groomer, all about the show all really helps me out. And I recently passed 3000 subscribers on YouTube, which is amazing. So thank you all so, so very much for subscribing. And if you're listening to the podcast and you've ever been curious about what I look like, and perhaps you just want to check out my outfits because they are pretty fierce, then head on over there so you can finally put a face to the voice. I'd love to see you there. Leaving a positive review also helps a comment, a thumbs up, follow, subscribe, all of that fun stuff, which is all 100% free and it's all more helpful than you know and will allow me in the long run to bring you more of the haunted history we both love. A big thanks to my amazing top tier legendary executive Patreon producers, Amy, Christina, Christoph, Kate, Kevin, Mary, Rose, Sally, Sam, Sarah, Teresa, Terry, V and Veronica and all of our other patrons too. If you'd like your name read out by me at the end of every episode or your name in the show notes, then make sure you check out my Patreon where you can also get exclusive episodes like the show I have with my long-suffering other half called Having a Problem, where we have a general chit-chat about a topic once a fortnight and try to solve the overarching problem we both have with it, with varying degrees of success. So far, we've solved issues with robots, exercise, school, and our next one is video games. That's that, but yeah, are there any games you played with joystick and buttons? Pac-Man, obviously. I remember mm-hmm. Pac-Man, but I was never really that keen on Pac-Man. I used to be alright at it, but yeah, it wasn't wasn't that great. I, I I made my parents buy me a how to beat Pac-Man book when I was a kid. Oh. And similarly I made my parents buy me a how to do the Rubik's Cube book when i was a kid did you learn Um, either of those things well certainly the rubik's cube one my mum complained later that i bought the book and i was like ah this is too hard and just forced my mum to read the book and do the (laughs) rubik's cube for me that sounds about right that was the kind of lazy child i was yeah but yeah i don't don't think my mum played much (laughs) pac-man no they're a little bit history-based, a little bit fact-based, and a lot silly. So make sure you check that out. And there's also loads of other bonus content over there too. Literally hours of it. And it's all very reasonably priced. I hope to see you over there so I can personally welcome you to the Ghoul Gang. And lastly, thanks very much to the wonderful London Nootropics for sponsoring this episode. Please do go and take a look at their website. I promise you, you won't be disappointed. I love their products so, so much, and you will too. And don't forget your discount code either. That's macabre for your 20% off at londonnootropics.com. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce. Remember to stay spooky, and I'll see you ghouls next time. Right, I feel like I might need to lie down after that. Or maybe a cocktail. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.